Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Long, long before that, Augustine of Hippo, you may know him better as St. Augustine, said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it, find it finds its rest in thee. Lewis and Augustine both understood this idea of longing, longing for a Savior, to desire something bigger and deeper and stronger. Longing indicates a sense of lack, of need, of something that is wrong needing to be made right. It's an abiding desire for something we do not have, and often that we seem unable to attain, at least in the foreseeable future. Longing carries a sense of ought, of oughtness, something ought to be which currently is not. It's a very familiar feeling in our world. The daily news can be depressing. We see a world cast hopelessly in darkness. And for all of our striving and planning, it only seems to get worse. We cry out for peace, not only from humanistic motives, but from a, a deep theological longing for a better world. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon wrote that God has set eternity in the hearts of humanity. There's an innate craving inside of us that longs for justice, for wrong to fail, and right to prevail. It's part of the imago dei, the image of God in us. It's by God's design that we long for a justice and peace that we cannot experience in this fallen and broken world. It's for precisely this reason that he promised to send the Prince of Peace, <clears throat> excuse me, who will eventually, at his second advent, bring the perfect peace for which our hearts cry out. Jesus came to save us because only he can satisfy our longing. In Luke chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to turn there. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, make sure you get one. Just put your hand up and Michael will make sure you've got one because you want to be able to see what God's Word says. In Luke chapter 2, we're, most of us, pretty familiar with the Christmas story, the the nativity, if you only saw it on, uh, on it's Christmas, Charlie Brown, and Linus sharing the story of the shepherds and the angels, maybe you're less familiar with this next part. In Luke chapter 2, after Jesus had been born, when it was time for him to be presented in the temple, something amazing happened. And we see in this this constant longing that we have. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of, the purification, of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Being a good Jewish family, they were following the law. They presented him at the temple. They completed rituals of purification that they would be able to come. In verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That was the offering that was for uh, the hopelessly poor, the destitute. Others would have to bring a different sacrifice, but this was a provision by God for those who were poor. So we know that Joseph and Mary were devout. They were interested in honoring God and keeping the law, and also that they were not people of means. They were poor. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. Everybody say Simeon. Simeon. You need to know this guy. There's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Note this next portion. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That 
idea of the consolation of Israel is for God to send his Redeemer. He was waiting for Messiah to come and deliver the exiled people of Israel. The nation had essentially been disbanded as they had rejected God. And God not only keeps his promises, but he keeps his warnings. And as he kept his warning toward Israel, he first tried to get their attention by dismissing rejecting, not completely, but for a time, and banishing the northern ten tribes, known as Israel, leaving the two tribes, the two southern tribes, known as Judah, this was David's line, and eventually even Judah was, was exiled, and the Babylonians came in and carried them off. Simeon was one of those who was waiting for God to keep his promises to Israel. He was waiting for the redemption, the ransom, the reconciliation, or as we see it here, the consolation of Israel. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law, excuse me, <clears throat> when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Notice his prayer saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in, Jerusalem, in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. But the amazing events continue. This has just happened. Simeon comes, sees them, immediately recognizes by the power of the Holy Spirit that this is the Messiah he's been waiting for. This is God's salvation, the consolation of Israel. And he prophesies this great joy and yet mixed with sorrow, as the sword will not only pierce the Messiah, as Isaiah had indicated, but would pierce the heart of his mother. Those of you who are parents, especially mothers, you can understand. When your child is hurting, you'd rather have that sword in your own body than in the soul of watching them go through it. It's such a difficult thing. and So the Messiah's mission would be very, very hard on those who loved him. But he was the promised one. Check out what happens next. This has just happened. He walks in. Hey, here's a baby. There's no glow around him. It's not like you see in the, in the Christmas cards. But he's the Messiah. Next in verse 36, there was also a prophetess. A prophet or a prophetess is one who speaks on behalf of God, who receives, thank you, Gabriel, who receives the word of God and then communicates that to others. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, even older than me. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. In this particular time, now 80 is not exactly young, period. She's 84 in a time when 40 was considered a good, strong life. You get to be 50 or 60, and you're on the aged side. But 84, as a widow, without someone to provide for her in that society, this was a long and difficult life. And yet, she was devout. She was committed. She was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84, meaning she didn't remarry. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment in verse 38, that gets really tiny on the page there. Coming up to them at that very moment, 
She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward, note this, who were looking forward to the redemption of, Israel, of Jerusalem. Just as we see Simeon, who is there waiting for the consolation of Israel, we see Anna, everybody say Anna. Simeon and Anna, you should remember their names together as we go through this. Simeon and Anna both waiting, Anna waiting along with all of those who had their hopes set on the Messiah, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now it's not just the city of Jerusalem, but the symbolism of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented David, the throne of David, ruling over Israel. And the promise, as we saw last week, to David was that one from his line would sit on the throne of Israel forever, that, that Jerusalem would be elevated. 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. As we begin to move into the preaching of the word, following the reading of the word, let's pray to the author of the word. Heavenly Father, you have much to say to us. I pray this morning that you would speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Lord, you, you alone speak truth. You alone satisfy the longings of our heart. Help us to stop trying to fill emptiness with things that are not of you, but to find our hope in Christ alone. As we celebrate this Advent, this coming of our King, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. It's our tradition to light these Advent candles as we go through this Advent season. And the first week we celebrated the fact that we have a particular need for a Savior. Because our sin had permanently and irrevocably separated us from God, Jesus came to save us because only He could. We couldn't save ourselves. Last week we talked about the the promise of the Savior and the reality that Jesus came to save us because God keeps His promises. He had promised to His people from Genesis 3 on that He would send one to save us, to make things right, to crush the serpent, that He would raise up the seed of Abraham and make a great nation and bless all nations through Him. That he would bless the line of David. That the Redeemer would come. That sounds harsh right there, isn't it? It's right in your eye. <coughs> and he promises us that all of his promises come together. They find their yes in Christ. So it's through him that we utter our amen to God. Today, we light the third candle of Advent as we recognize that we have a deep and abiding longing for a Savior. We as a people, before we ever come to thinking about God and recognizing Christ as the only one who saves us, we know that something isn't right. We have a longing inside that we're all trying to fill. Some of us find the way to fill it. Others fill it so quickly with other things that we don't even notice. And we stay hungry and we keep on striving to try and fill it with something else. And we try to fill it with reputation, money, relationships, substances to hide the longing. Sometimes we try to fill it with food or shopping or work. And all of these things leave us empty. Our core reality for today is that Jesus came to save us because only he can satisfy our longing. Let's read that together. Jesus came to save us because only He can satisfy our longing. As we work through these songs today, we've been working through this series 
uh, Sing We Now of Christmas, and we've kind of taken a look at old hymns that talk us through this story. And we saw in our first week that in Christ, God and sinner are reconciled. It's Jesus that brings us together, that pays the price, the propitiation. It's a great theological word. It means the appeasement of God's righteous wrath. Our sin separated us from God. Jesus, paying the price for sin, died in our place. That's why we have these crosses. It's not just some funky jewelry you should wear or something you should put up on your, on your wall. It's not a magic talisman. It's a reminder that my life came at the price of His. That my freedom came at the price of His. Our salvation is absolutely free because He paid for it. Paid the dearest price that there is. We need to recognize that. But because of, of that price, we are able to be reconciled to God. And last week, as we, uh, as we walked through these things together, we saw that God keeps His promises that had been foretold long before. So when the angels came and announced that glorious song of old, they were saying what the prophets had promised long before God would do. And it's a reminder to us as we celebrate Christmas that God is a promise keeper. He makes promises and He keeps promises. May we be more like Him. And the reason that we have a hard time with our faith is because we're so bad at keeping promises. All of us are. But God's not like that. He always keeps His promises. He's always faithful. And He's always able to carry through. That's why Paul praises this God in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, calling Him the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. It's not only that He wants to give us good things, He is able to give us good things. And when the Creator of the universe, who has all things at His disposal, has power and control over all things, makes you a promise, you can believe that promise. And yet, still, we find ourselves longing. Maybe you've wondered at times, if God is so good, if God has given us the Savior to set everything right, then why is stuff still so messed up? We have this longing in us every day. We see injustice in the world around us, and we long to see justice done, to see things set right. Especially when we see the suffering of the innocent, the, <clears throat> the, whether it's the Sarah McLaughlin uh, commercials of the abused pets, that you quickly turn your TV off or turn your face away because it's too hard to deal with. Anybody? Raise your hand if that's you. That's too much. I can't take it. I know that things should be better than that. Or when you read a news story or experience in your life an abused child. Even things like the, the Me Too movement. All of the injustice of racism that takes place in our world. It's not hard for us to recognize that stuff is broken. This world is falling apart. That's the result of sin. As we have sung today, we can recognize that this world is like a lonely exile. In fact, let's just walk through that song a little bit. As we are seeing what God is doing in the Advent, in the coming of Christ, <coughs> let's look at that line from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Israel is a picture of the human race. In case you hadn't picked up on that as you go through your scripture. Israel is not the church, but it's like the church. Israel is not all of the human race, but it's like the human race. God called out the people of Abraham to be set apart for himself 
to show a picture of how he relates to his people. So as we see Israel's history, we can learn from them. In Genesis chapter 3, we fell. We fell in Adam. And all of us inherit that sin nature. All of us, by nature and by choice, in our own setting, eat that fruit from the forbidden tree. All of us do. And therefore, all of us, because of our nature and our choice, stand condemned already. From the moment we are conceived, sin is present in us. There are no true innocents. All of us have sin. Note this. Separation from God leaves our deepest longings unfulfilled. Separation from God leaves our deepest longings unfulfilled. Turn, if you would, to the beginning of the book in Genesis chapter 3. If you've been with us, you're familiar with this chapter already. This is where the story of sin enters the story of creation. God is created. Everything is perfect. Before we get to Genesis 3, we're going to take a look at just a couple of verses there. But I want you to back up from there to Genesis chapter 1, at the very end of Genesis 1. <clears throat> Starting with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created us, created humanity with a purpose. It was intentional, there was a design to it, and he created us different than the rest of creation. Everything else in the universe that God created does not bear his image, his likeness. It may bear his thumbprint, it may have the signature of the master artist who has sculpted it all, but humanity alone bears the image of God. We call that in, in Latin the imago dei, the image of God. All of us have that. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God intends us the way he creates us. God blessed them, verse 28. And said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then in chapter 2, God kind of steps out. We've got the big picture of how creation went down. Then he kind of steps out of that, focuses in, and gives a vignette where he shows what happened on the sixth day. How did he go about this? A little more detail in creating Adam from the dust and creating the woman from the man. But notice at the end of Genesis chapter 2, uh, let's pick up with verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Already in the very beginning of scriptures, we see we haven't even gotten to sin yet. Before sin ever shows up, God institutes marriage exactly the way he designs it, between one man and one woman, for life, joined as one person. Divorce was never part of God's intention. That only comes with sin, period. All of the identity struggles that we have, all of the LGBTQ plus issues, only come up as a result of sin in the equation. This happens in chapter 3. That also means all of the heterosexual fornication, anything outside of God's plan for marriage, all comes after Genesis 3. This right now is perfection. 
intimacy between the man and his wife with no problems. Imagine a marriage where you never fight. I hear the laughter because you don't know about a marriage where you never fight. If you can even imagine that, it means you're not married. Just warning you guys over there, engaged couples. The reality of it is, if you're married, you fight. Amen? Amen. If you're not married, you still fight. Amen? Amen? We're made for conflict, it seems. And yet we can look at the account here and recognize that's not how it ought to be. We know that we're made for more than that. And there's something inside of us that when we have difficult relationships, we know it shouldn't be like that. We may not really understand how it ought to be, but we know it ought to be something different. That points back to what we see here. Let's continue, though. <clears throat> Verse 24. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Notice verse 25. This is what I want you to see before we jump ahead. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's not just because I want to see you all smirking because I just said they were naked. It's because the reality of this nakedness is different than they ain't got no clothes. The reality of this is a nakedness unto one another. There is nothing protecting, nothing dividing, only vulnerability and security in that vulnerability. They are completely exposed before one another, emotionally, physically, spiritually. They are completely exposed before God. There is nothing between. That is how we were intended. Now, understand, they could have been wearing completely head-to-toe clothing, and still this concept applies. Being naked before one another is not focusing on their wardrobe. It's focusing on the perfection of the relationship. This is what God has called us to. <clears throat> Chapter 3 is where everything goes haywire. We know that they were commanded not to eat of the fruit. Chapter 3, they eat of the fruit. They buy the lie that the devil gives them. The woman eats, gives it to the man. He should be setting things right. Instead, he bites two, and immediately things go awry. I want to stay focused here. As they come into this place of sin, they immediately recognize that they're naked. When, they, when God comes to them to walk with them in the cool of the day, as it says he does, in this intimate relationship, they're hiding from God. Good idea, bad idea? What do you think? Kind of dumb, right? He created everything. Pretty sure he can see you behind the bushes. Pretty sure your fig leaves aren't fooling him. There is no covering. You can't hide. You can't cover up your sin. This is actually a good picture of what happens to us when we try to make up for our failures. When we try to make amends, I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to try and, and set right what has been set wrong, but the reality is your sin stains you so deeply and completely that no amount of good deeds can balance the scales. We can't undo our sin and we can't cover it up with metaphorical fig leaves. Sometimes we try to pretend. We go to church and we put on our, our nice face and maybe you put on your, your Christmas sweater and everything's happy and good and nice and wonderful and I've got it together and I don't sin at all when I'm away from you. I'm just as happy and together when I'm away from church as I am right here in the room. And all God's people said, hogwash. <laughs> the reality is that's not us. We've got a deep stain. Fig leaves don't change that. But notice, notice the effect. Notice the feeling here. Notice what happens in verses 23 and 24. God has already given the curse to the, to the uh, serpent. He's given the curse to the woman. He's given the curse to the man. All of the physical universe has changed because sin has destroyed things. God isn't done. 
But notice, verse 23, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's angels, <clears throat> warrior angels actually, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. For the first time ever, intimacy is shattered. They are banished, exiled, if you will, from the garden. This is what happens when we are separated from God. When we reject God's ways, we don't have that relationship anymore. That's a difficult place. Fast forward to Israel. We talked last week about God's promises to Israel that He would be their God. They would be His people. He would be their God. And yet, there were conditions. There were warnings. Israel rejected God. They decided to do things their way instead of God's way. They decided they wanted to be like everybody else and live according to human understanding rather than to trust in the Lord with all their heart. It didn't end well. God exiled them as well. Turn to Lamentations. Where in the world is Lamentations? What is a Lamentations? Find the Psalms, move to the right, and you're going to go past Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then there's a little book right after Jeremiah, between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, called Lamentations. A Lamentation is a mournful song, a dirge, if you will. This lament expresses the sadness and the pain. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet. So in the book of Jeremiah, he's giving the prophecies of what God is going to do in judgment against Israel. And yet, just as with Isaiah, despite all the judgment, he continues to say God is faithful, God keeps his promises, even though you are unfaithful and you break your promises, you have committed adultery against the Lord, and the Lord has kept you and redeemed you. But when you choose to go on your own, there's a loneliness, there's a pain, there's a price. This book of Lamentations is the only book in the Bible that is completely filled with these laments, these songs of sorrow, of misery, of pain. And it's the response or the, the, uh, the feeling, trying not to use the word feeling, but I just don't have a better one that Israel is going through as they are exiled, as they are rejected, banished, separated from God. A picture of our sin. Let's start with verse 1. How deserted lies the city once so full of people, speaking of Jerusalem. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn. Think about that for a moment. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. Speaking of the worshipful time, the celebrations, the rituals, the things that God had appointed for them at the temple, nobody's coming anymore because it's been destroyed. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her maidens grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief. <coughs> because of her many sins. <coughs> the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. 
All the splendor has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her afflictions and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Longing. How about that? Longing for something to mop up the water. I'm going to blame Gabriel for that. Thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> All right. I can take one of those right there. A little delay in the message. So longing comes from a sense of what ought to be and yet is not. Often we long for the things of the past. We look back nostalgically and we think, oh, things were so much better in those glory days. Thank you. Israel here, having experienced God's rejection, looks back to the days when she was prosperous, when she was safe and secure. And in this longing, I'm going to throw that down there for you. Thank you. My daughter with a servant's heart, thank you very much. In, in her longing, the memory of what used to be only makes it worse. Once you have tasted the goodness, and now you taste the rejection, how much harder is that? Maybe that's easiest for us to understand when we've gone through something like a divorce. Once you have known what it was like and lost it, to feel that particular betrayal, there is a special kind of hurting it's a new loneliness, lonelier than you were before you were married. It's a difficult, difficult thing. Israel went through that. You and I wrestle in this same exile. We are inherently, innately separated from God until we have been redeemed by the Savior. Jesus says this himself in John chapter 3. I'm going to squeak for the rest of the sermon up here because of the water. Just going to say it now. Jesus says this in John 3. You're familiar with verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But notice what, what he says in verses 17 and 18. The Son didn't come to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18 is a kicker, however. It says, everybody already stands condemned if you haven't received him. It's not like Jesus comes and passes judgment. We're already judged. We're already in exile. We're already separated from him. We need someone to save us. Jesus came to save us because only he can satisfy our longing as we mourn in this, lon in this lonely exile. Only Jesus can satisfy our longing. If you've ever uh, experienced seasonal affective disorder, uh, if you've ever gone through the depression of a, of a dark, long, lonely winter time, when you have those, and we've had several weeks like that, it's great when the sun comes out after we've just had weeks of gloomy, cloudy darkness, it just kind of feels depressing. When you see Charlie Brown in the cartoons, he's got a little rain cloud over his head. Everything else is nice, but there's a little rain cloud over his head. Have you ever felt like that? Some days just feel hard and heavy. It's an interesting thing. <laughs> As uh, John Steinbeck, his last novel that he won a Nobel Prize for, it's called The Winter of Our Discontent. And he was borrowing from Shakespeare. But he wrote this novel that showed the moral quandaries that we go through as we want something we don't have. And then we choose alternate methods to try to satisfy that longing. And the winter of our discontent brings us to this place that is so much gloomier and darker and heavier than if we had not chased after these pursuits in the first place. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. Some of you are probably familiar with 
the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one of the great laments in Narnia, you may remember, before Aslan comes, you know, don't you, is that it's always winter and never Christmas. Can you imagine? You get all the snow of Michigan and all the ice and all the bluster and no Santa Claus. Some of you are thinking, man, I'm going to Florida today. I'm not. Too hot for me. But the reality is we go through this in our winter now. The Christmas is what brings us the joy as the one is born who will un unfreeze this winter, who will push away the clouds that block the light, who will disperse the gloomy clouds of night. Note this, sin and its effects darken our world. Sin and its effects darken our world. Because of the fall in Genesis 3, because of the rejection of God in Israel's history, a darkness comes over the human race, a darkness comes over Israel. There's a loneliness. And it changes things. There is a, a, a prophecy in Isaiah 9. You can turn there. We're going to take a look at it real quick. There's a, and you'll want to keep it marked because we'll be back here. There's, an, uh, there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 about this gloominess. If you're in Lamentations, just back up slightly to the left. This is a chapter that gets read every Christmas. Starting with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Notice, the clouds don't take away the sun. They only block it. All of the things that make our days gloomy and dark don't change one thing about that burning star at the center of our solar system. It stays constant. Darkest days... Longest nights, doesn't matter. The sun is still doing what the sun does. Same is true in our lives. All the gloomy clouds of night, all of the sin and its effects that have made this world so difficult to live in, all of the cancer and injustice, all of the racism, the unfair labor practices, abused animals, Bears, losses, any of those things. They are just blocking our view. They're distractions from the light. Isaiah prophesies a time when the Savior, the Messiah, would come and cast light into that darkness to change everything. Turn to Romans chapter 1 as we get a picture of this darkness. Past where we were earlier in the book of Luke. In the book of Romans, Paul lays out the human condition. It's a great Cliff's Notes of the Bible, if you will. It gives the whole, whole picture of what God's doing. It's like God gets to this point in the story and says, let's just stop for a minute, kind of review and see how this all fits together. And Paul, as he lays this out for us, spells out the human condition for all of us starting in verse 18. And it ain't pretty. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And their foolish hearts were darkened. These 
sinful attitudes are the gloomy clouds of night that block the light from our sky. Although they claimed to be wise in verse 22, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now we may not make idols the same way they did then. But we have plenty of idols of our own. We created things to worship in our own image. It may be the pursuit of wealth. I think more often it's a philosophy. We create gods that fit our understanding. We pursue our own wisdom as if we alone are wise. We even worship ourselves. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. If you want it, you get it. You want to choose to live by yourself? You want to live, if you want to live by yourself, you want to do things your way, great. It's a little bit like Aladdin. You, you get that, right? Phenomenal, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. You get that same thing here. If you want to live without God, then great, you get to live without God. God hands them over. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. We worship that relationship in our world. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. That depraved mind is a really important concept. We're talking about the darkness here. Depraved mind is an indication of corruption. That there is a darkness that has come over even our intellect through this depravity. And the doctrine of human depravity teaches not that we are all as completely corrupt as we could be, I'm sure that each of us here could find more sins to, to do. We could do worse things than what we've done so far today. But all of the things that we do are touched by sin. Everything is corrupted. It's mutated. It's deformed. It's darkened. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Boy, we're good at that today, aren't we? They disobey their parents. Notice how that's right there. Kids, pay attention here, all right? On the list of all these heinous sins, disobedience to parents is part of that. Parents, pay attention. It's your job to teach your kids to obey. Not because you're so awesome that they should worship you, but they need to understand how authority and submission works to understand the world that God created. They need to understand how to obey parents in order to learn how to obey God. If we don't do our job as parents, our kids will never learn that and we end up with the generations that we have had, including mine. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sounds a lot like the world we live in. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do, do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is my, my beef with sin. It's not with the sinner as much as it is with churches who don't teach the difference between right and wrong. Whenever we want to tell people that sin isn't sin, that right is wrong and wrong is right, we are lying to them. We are not loving them. We are only enhancing the darkness. If we really want to love people, we need to bring light into the world. Turn to John chapter 1. Back to the left just a little bit.
If you get to Luke, you went a little too far. John chapter 1. John, the beloved disciple, is writing about Jesus. And he describes him in this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. Notice this. That life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Goes on to talk about John, the forerunner. Not John who wrote this book, but John that uh, Luke writes about in chapter 1 of his book. John the Baptist, who would be the prophet to tell of Messiah. There came a man in verse 6 who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Flip the page to chapter 8. John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Messiah disperses the gloomy clouds of night. Jesus came to save us because only He can satisfy our longing for that light. He came also to order all things far and nigh, as the song says. Note this, God promised a Redeemer to set wrong things right. God promised a Redeemer to set wrong things right. I asked you earlier to, to keep Isaiah 9 marked and I failed to mark it myself. Back in Isaiah 9, picking up where we left off, actually, with verse 3. Speaking here prophetically about Messiah. This is 700 plus years before Jesus was ever born. The Lord says through Isaiah, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Remember, they're in exile as he's writing this. They are in exile. But God promised a Redeemer to set wrong things right. Verse 4, For as in the day of Midian's defeat you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace in Hebrew is Sar Shalom. We'll talk about peace in a minute. This idea of the Prince of Peace is a champion who would rule and would fight to bring peace. Of the increase of his government in verse 7, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God keeps his promises, just as he made to David, and the hope that we have to satisfy our longing comes from the promises of God, knowing that he will set things right. He promised the Messiah... The people looked forward to it. Simeon and Anna longing for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. Turn to the right a few pages to Jeremiah. Not quite to Lamentations. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. God promised a Redeemer that would set the wrong things right. We long for something better. 
We see that something ought to be, and yet it is not. We long for justice. We don't find justice. We long for peace. Yeah, right. There's no peace. There cannot be peace while evil exists. As long as there is evil, there will always be conflict. Always. As long as sin remains, peace will not be found. God has a solution. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. All the way toward the back of the book. If you get all the way to Revelation, just turn back a little bit to the left. We're going to look at 2 Peter. It's got two letters. 2 Peter is the latter of those. Third chapter, starting with the second verse. Peter, the big fisherman, writes, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your, through your apostles, those special messengers. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Where is this advent, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Peter appeals all the way back to Genesis that God is the creator of all things. He does what he wants. Verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God will set all things right. The Redeemer was sent. Jesus came to redeem us. He has redeemed us all spiritually who will take part in that. To as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become the children of God. His death on the cross purchased our salvation, but He's not done yet. He is coming back. And when He comes back, then all of the prophecies of this world without conflict, without sin, without despair, will come to pass. But it doesn't come easy. Everything is set apart for destruction. Verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. God's not slow. He's giving us a chance. Every person you know needs to know Jesus before the judgment comes. Because there's only two destinies, and they're both eternal. One is life and one is death. The difference is what you have done with Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you don't know Him personally... If you don't cherish Him as the master of your life, the Savior you've been longing for, then you are outside of the family. And should judgment come today, should you die or the Lord return, you face eternal death. The ones you love, shoot, even the ones you like, who don't know Jesus, face that eternity. How can we say we love them if we don't share with them the truth of life? Why is God delaying? Why is sin increasing? Why do things keep getting worse and worse? Because until He comes back to set all things right, and when He does, He will come to rule with an iron scepter to destroy the ungodly, He is being patient. He is allowing for the full measure of those who will come to come. And when the gavel strikes, the sentence gets passed. And there are no more chances. Our longing now in this broken world should remind us that God will set things in order and we must be ready. The Prince of Peace will come. And all who are on the wrong side will be destroyed. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. He will come and fill all the world with heaven's peace. Last point, Christ is returning to rule in perfect shalom. When we put peace, it's bigger than that. Christ is returning to rule in perfect shalom. He is the Tsar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Jesus will come and establish this kingdom. All that is temporary will be destroyed. All that is not perfect will be destroyed. All those who are outside of a perfect intimacy with Him, with God in Christ, will face eternal death. And all that will remain is sinless perfection. No more sorrow. No more sadness. No more war. Isaiah 11 speaks to this. But I'm going to have you jump over that and go directly to Revelation chapter 22. Isaiah 11 speaks of the, the work of Messiah to bring about this final kingdom where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and a little child shall lead them. Where there will not be the fear, there will not be the conflict, there will not be the war. Revelation gives us a picture of that in chapter 22. After all of the events have taken place, the day of the Lord has come, judgment has been passed, the righteous have received reward, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life receive in themselves, the punishment due for sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Separation from God for eternity. But the new heavens and new earth have come. 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Just want to let that sink in for a moment. No longer will there be any curse. Remember we saw that in Genesis 3. Sin came, brought a curse. In Romans 8 we're told that the that the entire earth is groaning as with birth pangs, waiting for the new heavens, the new creation. The entire cosmos under this curse. Not now. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, this new Jerusalem, and His servants will serve Him. That's us. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. No more gloomy clouds of night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign. We will reign with him forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Jump down to verse 13 and verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root 
and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. He is the Savior that we have been longing for. He is the Savior and His kingdom we continue to long for. And He will return to set all things right, to rule in perfect peace, to satisfy our every longing. The idea of shalom is not just peace, it's completeness, wholeness, soundness. No lack, no gap, no crack. This new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth that we see in Revelation 22 is the picture of Isaiah 11, shalom. This is what our hearts are longing for. May we in this Advent season align ourselves with Him and welcome Christ who is the only one who can satisfy our longing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have longed throughout our days for hope and peace and justice and rightness that we can't quite comprehend. You've set eternity in our hearts and yet we can't comprehend all that you're doing from beginning to end. You've promised your people a deliverer. You've promised Emmanuel, God with us. So Father, we come to this symbolic manger, this cow feeder that became the birthplace of our our Messiah, our Christ, our Savior. Father, we recognize that that's one stop on this journey. But you came to be among us to keep your promise, to satisfy our longing. And so, Father, we sing praises to Emmanuel. And we are so thankful that you are with us. These things we pray. Jesus.